0: Thank you very much. In this lecture, to be continued on the last Monday of this month, I will describe the pivotal historical moment of the 20th century, which you all should thank God you didn't live to see. The communist revolution in Russia. Those of you who cannot remember that accursed century do not know the shadow of communism cast over the memories of those who lived through it as I did. At its worst, at the worst, a third of the world's population was under communist under the communist yoke, and it seemed that nothing could stop its expansion. Of that evil empire, as President Ronald Reagan fearlessly called it, there remained China, Vietnam, North Korea, and Cuba. The Russia of Vladimir Putin may be causing us some problems, but despite the fantasies of a few who cannot bear to give up our great enemy, communism as a world revolutionary movement is dead. (coughs) Communism was the most evil political system the world has ever known. Its one rival, Hitler's Nazism, was consciously copied from communism by Hitler himself, who said he had done so. Both systems were based on the one-party state in which the ruling party, Nazi or Communist, governed. I have said that the one-party, this form of government, the one-party state, was made in hell. The essence of communism is conveyed in two special places. One, an astonishing poem of prediction written in 1830, a hundred years before it all came true. The other, a statement by the architect of the Communist Revolution, Lenin, in a revealing reflection to a boyhood friend named Georgie e. Solomon just after his revolution had triumphed in Russia. What alone defeated communism is stated by an eloquent former communist, Whitaker Chambers, in his autobiography Witness, which will be the subject of a later lecture. Chambers found it to be the Christian faith. First, the poem Prediction by Mikhail Lermontov written in 1830 when the revolutionary monster had just revealed its face in Russia in the December Revolt of 1825. Lermontov said, looking forward across no less than a hundred years, a year will come for Russia, a dark year, when royalty no more his crown will wear. The rabble who loved him once will love forget for blood and death will riches feast be set. The fallen law will no more shield the weak, and maiden and guiltless child in the vain will seek for justice. Plague will ride where stinking corpses fill the countryside, and flapping rags from cottages demand help none can give while famine rules the land. Dawn on their streams will shed a crimson light that day will be revealed the man of might whom thou wilt know, and thou wilt understand wherefore a naked blade is in his hand. Bitter will be thy loss. Tears fill, will fill their eyes, and he will laugh at all thy tears and sighs. End quote. Never was there a better proof that poets can be prophets. It all happened just as Limerick foresaw. In 1933, when Joseph Stalin was ruling Russia, five million people died in Ukraine in the famine he engineered. (coughs) Corpses filled the countryside and rags flapped from deserted farmhouses, just as the poem had predicted. The man of might, Stalin, ruled all of vast Russia, unchecked, dismissing all pleas for help or mercy with sardonic jests. Even the Russian communists related to his own and downgrade style. He was probably killed by his own henchman, chief of the secret police Beria. But that did not happen until nineteen fifty three, after thirty years of the most evil rule in all history, even worse than Hitler's. The man who planned it all, the supreme history maker of the accursed twentieth century was Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov called Lenin, who made the Russian Revolution. He was the greatest destroyer in the world's history. He even foresaw that his revolution would continue in China, as it has. Few men have ever hated it, as Lenin hates. After his revolution succeeded in 1917, he said to his boyhood friend, Georgie e. Solomon, quote, We are the real revolutionaries. Yes, we're going to tear the whole thing down. We shall destroy and smash everything, ha, ha, ha. With the result that everything will be smashed to smithereens and fly off in all directions and nothing will be left standing. Yes, we're going to destroy everything. And on the ruins, we will build our temple. It will be a temple for the happiness of all. But we shall destroy the entire bourgeoisie and grind them to powder, ha, 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 to power. Remember that. And remember that the Lenin who talked to you 10 years ago no longer has any existence he died a long time ago in his place there speaks the new land who has learned the ultimate, that the ultimate truth lies in communism which must now be brought into existence End quote does this show you why we of the 20th century were so fully convinced that communism spoke with the voice of the devil rarely does one hear a man so explicitly leave the human race as Lenin does in this terrible passage which reeks of fire and brimstone. The revolutionaries considered themselves to be makers of history, but often were swept along by its currents. One revolutionary leader stood apart, breasting the tide, immune to passing enthusiasm. He was a man of coruscating intellectual brilliance and of diamond-hard, unbreakable will. The kind of man who moves mountains if he has faith or plums the depths of the abyss if he has it not. In every sense of the phrase, Lenin was cut off. He was seething and frustrated. All through 1916, Lenin lived in Zurich, Switzerland. He went almost every day to the library of Zurich in his orderly stillness, dreaming of power seized by violence in the streets of Petrograd and Moscow. But he had no way to get to either, almost no money or support. In November 1916, he reported the latest revolutionary news. Quote, there was a meeting of the lefts here today. Not everybody turned up, only two Swiss and two foreigners, Germans, and three Russian-Jewish Poles. There was no report, just an informal talk, end of quote. Exactly one year later, this isolated forgotten fanatic was to take Tsar Nicholas' place as autocrat of all the Russias, ruler and transformer of 150 million people and world revolutionary. Meanwhile, the First World War was laying earth waste. Germany declared war on Russia and France August 1st. The Germans were finally stopped at the Battle of the Marne when they turned it too soon and exposed their flank to a counterattack. Then came a new horror. For war, that curse of fallen man, is not endurable for long without hope of victory. And in almost all of military history, the road to victory had been to attack. But in 1914, the strength of defensive weapons for the first time far exceeded the offensive. For the machine gun had arrived while the tank tarried. The machine gun ruled any fixed battlefield. There was no answer to it, No defense against it. So when the Germans stopped at the Marne, they could not start up again. By the end of 1914, the the trench lines on the western front, bristling with machine guns, ran from Switzerland to the English Channel. Every day men died in the engulfing mud of the trenches. All quiet on the western front became a bitter slogan. On the eastern front, the distances were too great for continuous trench lines. The machine guns were just as deadly. Any offensive (coughs) inflicted a far higher proportion of casualties on the troops involved than in any war in history before or since. The deadlock was unbreakable, but until 1916, no government on either side of the dreadful conflict could find the moral courage to face it. More than four million men bled or died on the battlefields of Europe in 1915, yet the western front remained unchanged. In the east, the Germans drove the Russians back 200 miles into Poland, but the German attackers wore themselves out well before they reached the borders of Russia itself. The next year, 1916, was even worse. A million men bled or died during 10 months before Verdun in France, from February to October, when the gas-lit grapple ended Both French and Germans held exactly the same positions as when it started. On the Somme River in the summer of 1916, over 600,000 British and French soldiers were killed or wounded to gain just 8 miles, while 650,000 Germans were killed or wounded to limit them to that. Those 8 miles cost the life or health of 30 men for every foot two and a half men for every inch of all Europe's leaders during these nightmare years years of the greatest bloodletting in the history of western civilization there were more battlefield casualties in the first world war than in the second Though civilian casualties were greater in the second world war due to the bombing of cities only two men consistently denounced the war and called for peace two men joined in no other way Christ's vicar, Pope Benedict XV, whose hallowed name our present pope has taken for his own, and Christ's enemy, the devil's disciple, Lenin. Later, the new emperor, Karl of Austria, would also try and fail to make peace. On June 16, 1917, the first all-Russian Congress of Soviets, Soviets were councils of Russian workers and soldiers established by Lenin, who said that all power should be given to them, met in Petrograd, the capital of Russia. This Congress had 105 of Lenin's Bolsheviks among 285 social revolutionaries and 248 Mensheviks. Lenin, the revolutionary the revolution maker, was there. Reporter M. Phillips Price vividly described him at this decisive moment. There now arose from an obscure corner of the room a thick-set little man with a round bald head and small tartar eyes who strode with firm step an even firmer look upon his countenance up the gangway where sat in serried ranks the revolutionary democracy. A hush came upon the whole assembly. No uncertain words came from his lips. Straight to the point he went from the first moment of his speech and pursued his opponents with merciless logic. Let us have either one of two things. Let us have either a bourgeois government with its so-called social reforms on paper, such as exists in every other country now. Or let us have that government which you, pointing to the Menshevik leader Saratelli, seem to long for, but apparently have not the courage to bring into existence. A government of the proletariat which has its historic parallel in 1792 in France. Lenin the history maker knew exactly where he was going, and at this critical moment he said it, back to the French Revolution and the reign of terror. When Saratelli declared from the rostrum that there was no political party in Russia prepared at that moment to exert the full power of government, Lenin electrified the assembly by leaping to his feet, shouting, I say there is! We are prepared at any moment to take over the entire power. And he was. Less than five months later, he did. On july thirteenth, the Blessed Virgin Mary made her third appearance to the three children of Fatima at F- of Fatima at the Cova da area in Portugal and spoke to them of Russia, a far country of which they had probably never heard. In all the recorded apparitions of the Blessed Virgin Mary, which the Catholic Church has held worthy of belief, these were only words of specifically political as well as prophetic significance. Quote, I come to ask the consecration of Russia to my Immaculate Heart and the communion of reparation on the first Saturdays. If they listen to my request, Russia will be converted and there will be peace. If not, she will scatter her errors throughout the world, provoking wars and persecutions of the church. The good will be modernized. The Holy Father will have much to suffer. Various nations will be annihilated. In the end, my Immaculate Heart will triumph. The Holy Father will consecrate Russia to me, and it will be converted. Every word, quote, every word of that prophecy has come true. Russia indeed scattered her errors through the world in the communist revolution around the globe. She absorbed the nations of Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia, eliminating them as free republics by incorporating them into Russia. Pope John Paul II suffered much at the hands of the communists who tried to kill it in 1981, and he, con- and he has consecrated Russia to Mary's uh, immaculate heart. I know there are some who doubt that, but Sister Lucia, who heard Our Lady's words, pronounced his consecration sufficient. All that remains is the conversion of Russia, which God has reserved to this our century. That conversion has already begun through the work of an organization called the Aid to the Church, in, called Aid to the Church in Russia, of which I have the honor to be a director. In the midst of this of the war, in September 1916. Tsar Nicholas II, defying the advice of his entire cabinet, took or pretended to take personal command of the war at Army headquarters in Mogalef, at Mogilev in Belarusia, 600 miles south of the capital. Nicholas, Nicholas II had no military training, experience, or capability and always deferred to the real general, to Petrograd. His military conve- uh, command was a fiction. But the effect of his removal from the capital was to leave his wife and Rasputin in charge there. And Alexander was now entirely under the sinister, demonic influence of Rasputin. I gave a lecture about Rasputin earlier. From this point on, every minister in the government held office only on Rasputin's sufferance, And as they were dropped, their replacements were picked solely by Rasputin. All Russia knew it. In December, Rasputin specifically directed Alexandra to tell Nicholas always to do what Rasputin said. So now the devil who was possessing Rasputin was in charge. In February 1916, Rasputin had made his creature, the unprincipled and incompetent bureaucrat, Sturmer, prime minister. Rasputin met with Sturmer from time to time in St. Peter and Paul Fortress in the dead of night. The Sturmer appointment was violently unpopular, not only because of the appointee's German name, though that certainly did not help, but because of his total lack of qualification for high office. Vasily Shulgin, an intelligent and loyal monarchist in the Duma, of the Russian parliament, called Sturmer a, com- quote, a complete nullity. French Ambassador Maurice Pelelelot. Describes Sturman pungently as, quote, worse than a mediocrity, with limited intelligence, mean spirit, low character, questionable honesty, no experience, and no idea of statecraft, end quote. In 1916, Rasputin brought about the dismissal of all the remaining loyal ministers. In the crucial position of interior minister was placed the absurd, half-mad Alexander Protopopov, known as Pretty Polly. Alexander was now writing lists of decisions, most probably written by Rasputin, for Tsar Nicholas to confirm by telegram from Mogilev. Says British Ambassador Bernard Pears, an eyewitness, quote, at this point, most emphatically, the government of Russia was in the hands of Rasputin, end quote. As we have seen, this meant that the government of Russia in 1916 was literally in the hands of the devil. All Russia was now sinking under the crushing burden of the war, not only the endless <coughs> casualties in the trenches at the front, but also the ravages of exploding inflation, which caused prices to rise 300 percent, while wages only doubled since the beginning of the war. There were growing shortages in the Russian, as the Russian railway system on which all the country's transportation over its vast distances depended began to break down under the strain of unprecedented usage and few spare parts. The Tsar remained legally uh, legally, all-powerful. All All government emanated from him. Particularly in a great crisis such as the unwinnable war had produced, (coughs) he must govern, or at least be seen as governing. But Tsar Nicholas II was not governing Russia in 1916, and most people knew it. So Russia fell into the hands of Lenin and his ultimate revolution, and there was no one to stop him. A veritable parade of warnings, in writing or in person, impassioned and desperate, pleading and hoping against hope, came to Tsar Nicholas II during the dread course of the year 1916 when brave young men were dying by the millions, from his close relatives and truest friends, as well as from Russian patriots of every class and description. Some of, them, some of the appeals he dismissed in flashes of uncharacteristic petulance. More he gently parried the most hard-driven and convincing he sometimes seemed to respond to, but only to repeat again when confrontation loomed with Alexandra and the shadow of Rasputin behind her. <coughs> he was as weak and heedless of mortal danger as King Louis XVI in the French Revolution, which had also released the fountains of the great deep. In the Duma, the Russian parliament, Basil Maklakov Mack- thundered in vain, quote, Woe to that country where only the slave and the liar are close to the throne. In November nineteen sixteen, Nicholas II nerved himself at last for a real decision. Rasputin had transferred his support from Sturmer, whose troublemaking potential he had run dry, to Protopopov. Sturmer was dismissed. Nicholas asked the senior remaining minister in the government, Alexander Trepov, Minister of Transport, the former government. Trepov was one of the last remaining opponents of Rasputin among the ministers. Kropov refused unless Protopopov was first removed as interior minister. Nicholas therefore decided to, decided to remove Protopov explicitly urging Alexandra by letter oh, I beg do not drag our friend, her name Rasputin into this. The responsibility is with me <coughs> therefore I wish to be free in my choice. Receiving this letter, Alexandra unleashed every weapon she had to break her husband's will, which she knew knew to be so uh, easily breakable. Her letters to him rise to a pitch of near hysteria, and behind them the cold gray eyes and the big fleshy hands of Rasputin, the man possessed by the devil. Quoting Alexandra, All my trust is in our friend, who only thinks of you, Baby, Prince Alexis, and Russia. And guided by him, we shall get through this heavy time. It'll be a hard fight, but a man of God is near to guard you safely through the reefs. And little Sonny, meaning herself, is standing on a rock behind you, firm and unwavering with decision. Don't go and change Pope Popov now. Don't change anyone until we meet. I entreat you. You are alone with us too, herself and Rasputin, against everybody, quote. Close behind the letters, she came herself to Mogolev, knowing that Nicholas could never resist or deny her in person. He changed his mind and agreed to retain Popov as interior minister, whether Trepov liked it or not. Returning to Petrograd, Alexandra poured out more letters urging Trepov's dismissal. Those most loyal to the Tsar and the monarchy felt the horror and the tragedy of this astonishing situation most deeply. When the Duma reconvened, the Duma of the Russian Parliament reconvened december second, passionately conservative deputy Vladimir Parishovitch rose to attack Rasputin publicly as the destroyer of the monarchy. The next day he began to plan Rasputin's assassination with young <coughs> Grand Duke Dmitry Pavlovich, Prince Yousef, Felix Yusufov, a doctor named Lazarev, and an army captain named Sukhotin, The assassination date was set for the night of December 29th, 30th, the end of that fell year 1916. But as we have seen, Rasputin did not prove easy to kill. The devil was possessing Rasputin, The devil is a fallen angel and men cannot kill angels. The possessed Rasputin died 11 times that night and was only at last drowned when, I believe, he grappled with the archangel Michael himself under the dark waters of Petrograd's Naval River. For an angel can defeat an angel and I think this night he did. Tsar Nicholas II returned to Petrograd to bury Rasputin beneath the small chapel in the Imperial Park on January 3rd, with an icon in his grave signed by every member of the Imperial family. The next day, Nicholas's laconic diary tells us that he took, quote, a walk in the dark, end quote. Through all the next two months, Nicholas and Alexandra seem to have been walking in the dark. They were immobilized, cut off from reality. Alexandra wept almost constantly. With the death of Rasputin, she seemed ready to depart from life herself. They repeated the old formulas, insisting they would never relax the autocracy, but their hearts were not in, nor in anything they were doing. A deadly stillness fell upon the fountain head of the Russian state. The stream of warning, which had flowed so strongly the past fall, swelled to a flood. The warnings came from the Tsar's friends, from loyal subjects, from foreign ambassadors. Nicholas was told again and again, reform was absolutely necessary. Reform now, drastic reform, to restore public confidence and save the Russian state. Nicholas must show himself to the people, take charge as a reformer, establish a government which had the confidence and support of an empowered Duma. Nicholas would not listen and did nothing. When his prime minister, up to 1914, that fateful year when he had thrown the world into war, Count Vladimir Kokopsov, visited him on the 1st of February, 1917, he barely recognized him. Quote, his face was thin, his cheeks sunken, his eyes almost without color, the whites yellow and the people's gray and lifeless. He wandered vaguely from object to object. The Tsar looked as though he did not understand the word Karkovsov was saying. A vague smile fluttered over his face. A strange smile, Karkovsov recalled. I would say almost an unconscious one, without expression, sort of a sickly smile. He gave Karkovsov his hand and showed him to the door. End quote. The Tsar of all the Russias." was now a broken man, incapable of saving himself, his family, or his country. The devil in possession of Rasputin had arranged for it with all the skill of his superhuman mind. The government has virtually ceased to exist. Meanwhile, the sufferings of the people of Petrograd mounted in the bitter winter to the edge of the intolerable. Petrograd lies only a few degrees below the Arctic Circle, Every week, bread prices rose 2 to 3 percent, milk prices by 5 percent, eggs and chocolate by more than 10 percent. Firewood had become so expensive, quote, that workers had to choose between being warm and on the verge, of, but on the verge of starvation or being only moderately hungry but freezing, end quote. There were despairing strikes and management lockouts. Food shortages developed, compounded by the confused decrees of bureaucrats fumbling toward a rationing system. Bread lines began to form in bakeries at sunrise at 40 degrees below zero. On March 8, 1917, there was an immense line of women at every bakery in Petrograd crying out for bread. The government seized much of the small remaining supply of flour in order to have bread to distribute under the new rationing. Among the supplies seized was all the flour held by the Petrograd Consumers Society to bake bread for the eating places of the city's factory workers and workers' cooperatives, where more than 125,000 people, including many of the workers' families, ate every day. No bread at the home. Nobody at work. General Sergei Kavalov was in command at Petrograd. He had spent his entire career in military administration, never seeing combat, and was said to be, quote, incapable of leading his own subordinates, end quote. As the streets filled with cold, hungry, angry people, General Kavalov called up the Cossacks of the 1st Don Regiment. These world-famous cinders were the pride of the Russian cavalry. Having little in common with either the peasants or the city-dwellers, the Cossacks were uniquely valuable as defenders of the Tsar and the Russian state. They were supposedly immune to the blandishments of agitators. But the Don Cossacks were men. They too had suffered as all the people in Petrograd had suffered during that frozen winter, suffered not only physically, but spiritually, in a miasma void of purpose and hope. They no longer served a man, but the shadow of a man, a broken man. They no longer served the state, but the hollow shell of a state, ready to crack at a touch. They knew it, they felt it. The crowds of strikers and demonstrators in the streets cheered the Cossacks while still shouting for bread push harder some of the Cossacks told the people and we'll let you through that night a blizzard halted oh, <coughs> most of the trains coming into Petrograd some of them carrying flour for bread on March 10th the people of Petrograd shut down the city every, faculty was clo- every factory was closed no public transportation ran stores were looted signs appeared Down with the German woman, meaning Alexandra. Down with Popov. down with the war. Mass meetings were held. At 3 o'clock in the afternoon, a police officer named Krylov led a charge, mounted police, against a meeting that had been continuing all day in Znamanskaya Square on Nevsky Prospect, the principal street of Petrograd. One of the (coughs) non-Cossacks drew his pistol and shot him dead. That night, the Tsar, by telegram from Army Headquarters at Mogilev, commanded Kamelov to end his orders within the capital. The next day, firing on the crowds if necessary. The next day was Sunday, March 12. In the afternoon, a unit of the Pavlovsky Regiment opened fire on the people assembled around the Cathedral of Our Lady of Kazan, the most revered shrine in Russia. Another unit of the same regiment mutinied and fired on the police. The crowds killed the regimental commander. At Znamonskaya Square, where Officer Krylov had been shot the preceding day, the Valensky Regiment opened fire on the crowd with machine guns. That evening, Duma President Brodzienko telegraphed the czar Mogilev, quote, situation serious, anarchy in the capital, government paralyzed. Transport of food and fuel in full disorder. Popular discontent growing. Disorderly firing on in the streets. Some military units fire on one another. Essential immediately to order persons having the confidence of the country to form a new government. Delay impossible. Any delay deadly. I pray to God that in this hour the blame does not fall on the crown, end quote. Ended this telegram, which proved to be his very last warning of ultimate disaster, graphically worded and absolutely true in all respects. Nicholas II only responded, quote, Once again, that fat Razienko has written me some kind of rubbish which I'm not even going to answer, end quote. Instead of calling on the doom of the former new government, he issued a decree that night suspending its Sessions. At the Imperial Palace at Sarko Salo, Alexandra wrote to Nicholas at three thirty that Sunday afternoon, quote, It seems to me that it will be all right. The sun shines so clearly, and I felt such peace and quiet at his meaning Rasputin's dear grave, end quote. At nine o'clock that evening all electricity in Petrograd was shut off by the government, by government order. Military patrols stood at street corners, and let no one go near the Nevsky prospect. From the darkness came sporadic sounds of shooting, echoed by the howling of dogs. No one had ever heard dogs howl on the Nevsky before. It happened only that night. End quote." By ancient legend, when dogs howl at night, the powers of evil are exalted. The monarchy of Russia was falling, destroyed by the devil in person. That evening, when the dogs howled on the prospect, the men of the Volinsky Regiment, which that afternoon had fired machine guns on the crowd at Zamanskaya Square and at the Cathedral of Our Lady of Kazan, gathered to talk and argue about what they had done that day, what they might be ordered to do on the morrow. They were off duty, so there were no officers present. Full speeches began to be made, for duty or for revolution for General Kabilov or for the insurgent people of Petrograd for the Tsar or for those who are rejecting him. The heart and backbone of every army is its non-commissioned officers. The commissioned officer comes down to these men from the upper levels of society. Often he does not know or understand them well, nor they him. This was especially true in Tsarish Russia the sergeant rises from the ranks to lead his men personally into battle, sharing everything with them. With Anarchy in the capital and government paralyzed, the Volinsky Regiment listened to its sergeants. By dawn, March 12, after an all-night debate, one of them had emerged as his leader. His name was Tmofiev Kipichnikov. He makes his mark upon the history of the world at this time explosive, pivotal moment. Before Lenin ever got back to Russia, Sergeant Kropichnikov had made the first revolution. With Sergeant Kropichnikov, the Volinsky Regiment agreed not to fire again on the people of Petrograd with machine guns or anything else. The officers of the Volinsky Regiment entered their barracks at 6 a.m. Instead of saluting... The soldiers shouted, Hurrah! Commander Lashkovich, who had ordered the regiment to fire on the people the day before, asked what this meant. He was told it's a signal to disobey your orders. two officers tried to flee. Rifles cracked, and Lashkovich, the officer who had fired on the people, fell dead. General Kabalov told of the murder by some breathless messenger just after it happened, rushed to the barracks, where he found armed soldiers drawn up in formation, not only the Volinsky Regiment under Sergeant Kabichnikov, but two other regiments as well, wholly lacking in the raw courage and charisma of leadership that has sometimes quelled such mutinies against overwhelming odds. Kavaloff hurried away as fast as he could come. He wrote out a proclamation of martial law, but could find no glue to post it up. One of the regimental bands in the rebel unit struck a platoon. The mutineers marched out of their barracks carrying red flags. Red was their color now, the color of revolution, the color of blood, the color of land. Sergeant Kirshnikov had made revolution without him. At 10 o'clock in the morning, the rebel marchers broke into the litany arson where they seized 70,000 firearms and distributed them to the swarming crowds. revolution had come to Russia, but not yet the ultimate revolution, which Lenin was to bring in October. By noon, there were at least 25,000 fully armed mutineer soldiers in the streets of Petrograd, along with numerous armed civilians, while Kavlov had only been able to find 1,500 to stand with him. A brigadier general was killed by his men, Court buildings, prisons, and police headquarters were burned or sacked. Around and among the rebel soldiers roiled a throng of ordinary people, workers, women, adolescents, a cross-section of society below the aristocrats. A human wave 80,000 strong, crested by revolutionary red flags, lustily singing the French revolutionary anthem La Marseillaise, they came rolling up and into the Taurid Palace, (coughs) where the Duma, the Russian parliament, though no longer authorized by the Tsar, was still meeting at 1.30 in the afternoon of March 12. The wave filled the vast palace to overflowing. Alexander Kerensky, the fiery 35-year-old lawyer who was one of the most radical members of the Duma, and came from Lenin's hometown of Simbirsk on the Volga, shouted to his colleagues over the din, I must know what I can tell them. Can I say that the imperial Duma is with them, that it takes the responsibility on itself, that it stands at the head of the government, Thus did Alexander Kerensky emerge as the leader of the February Revolution. He was a very emotional man of exceedingly poor judgment who failed to halt Lenin's revolution and ended his days in the United States. Here I have a footnote to a biography of Kerensky. uh, It calls First Love of the Revolution. I note that Kerensky lived until 1970. As a graduate student at Columbia University, I heard him speak in the 1950s. In response to a question from me, he avowed that eventually Russia would overflow the communists. In this he prophesied truly, but he could have prevented Lenin's revolution from happening at all. For the old regime was dead, dead beyond any hope of revival or recall. Never in history has any monarchy fallen so quickly, so utterly as the Tsarist Colossus in March 1917. On the 15th, just three days after the Kravitznikov revolution in Petrograd, After one futile, fumbling, farcical attempt to regain control of the capital by 800 soldiers brought from the front, Nicholas abdicated in favor of his brother, Grand Duke Michael. But Michael spurned the ruined and discredited throne. He in turn abdicated the very next day. For Nicholas and Alexander and their children, there remained only the grim road to Siberian captivity. The road to Ekaterinburg. And the basement room in the house's special designation, where in July 1918, by the direct personal order of Lenin, then in power, they were all murdered in cold blood by revolver shots fired point blank. As for their nemesis, his dark memory lived on in the minds of the people. On March 23rd, they carried out their own crude exorcism. Once again, it was the small hours of the morning. Soldiers pulled Rasputin's coffin from beneath the chapel in the Imperial Park, where it had been buried. They levered the body out of the coffin with sticks. No one wanted to touch it. They assembled an enormous pile of pine logs. The body was put on the logs, drenched with gasoline, and set ablaze. It burned for a full six hours. Its ashes were scattered through the silent glades you to win. In the centuries of the glory of Christendom, men thought that devils could only be driven out by fire.